The Healthy Bronx podcast features the work of community leaders, grassroots organizations, policymakers, and healthcare workers to better understand the state of health in the Bronx. I'm your host. My name is Alexander Levine. This episode was recorded in the afternoon on Friday, February 26th, and features interviews I did back-to-back with John Sanchez and Elisa Crespo, who are both running in District 15. There's a number of reasons that make this year's city council elections really interesting, and I hope we can feature those on this podcast. And one reason that this is interesting is that it's a special election. So special election means that for some reason, um, it could be because there was, like in District 12, Andy King was ousted on ethics violations. So there was a special election. In this case, it's for much more positive reasons, um, because uh, Richie Torres was elected to the U.S. Congress, and now today we have John Sanchez, who is most recently district manager for Community Board 6, and Elisa Crespo, um, who most recently worked at the Bronx Borough President's Office and is seeking to be the first openly transgender lawmaker elected to city council. On today's episode, we gave John and Elisa each a prompt to explain one policy that they are running on that they see as connected to health in the Bronx, or in each in each, in each segment, we get into um, more than just that one health issue, and I hope you I hope you tap in and enjoy, and if, uh, if you like this podcast, then uh, please follow us on social media, write reviews, and subscribe, because that helps us grow. So let's get to it. Today we have John Sanchez, who is running in the 15th Council District in the Bronx. And uh, before we before we get into like kind of uh, learn about your campaign and 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 your district, what uh, I know it's a busy time for you. You guys are um, the election is March 23rd, right? For your yes. for your council district. So like I know today's been a busy day for you. Can you what what did today look like for you? This morning, I had some calls, um, and then we actually met with a management company and some residents about issues going on in a building, mm-hmm. um, trying to address those issues, whether it's cleanliness, security, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, after the podcast, I'm going to have a quick lunch, and then I'm going to uh, knock on doors and canvas and speak to more voters uh-huh. and until you- about 7 p.m. What is, how do you, like, what does that process look like of going canvassing? especially now? Well, we obviously have to be careful. Um, So only in groups of two, um, our team gets tested every Tuesday. Um, I have a mask on, staff has a mask on. We keep distance when we knock on the door. Some people prefer that we just leave our information under the door and that's Mm -hmm. fine. We just leave our information on the door. Some people prefer to just talk with the door closed. That's fine whatever is convenient for people. And then of course, we're still making phone calls and sending emails. So we're adapting, um, but we've been safe. No one on the team has been sick. We've been mm-hmm. very safe and very cautious. And um, you know, we rotate, we don't have the same person go with me every day. We rotate it. So it's not the same person every day. And are you, are you having the, are you canvassing every day now? Or, or what does a canvassing schedule look like? At this point, because we're less than a month out, Mm-hmm. Yes, I have to be out there every day. And is there anything you've picked up along the way canvassing that works to make those make those conversations meaningful when you're like going knocking on doors? Well, well you have to gauge it on the person. Uh-huh. Some people, they just want the information and they want to look it up. They don't want to have an extended conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what, what helps is when we ask people what they want to see change in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then it's not so much, hey, vote for me. It's more like, what can we do to work together? What would you like to see changed? And that resonates with people. And what also resonates with people is they'll ask me, you know, what have you done in the neighborhood already? Mm-hmm. And I explain what I've done and they say, oh, this is good. Um, mm-hmm. Even though you didn't do it in my specific part of the district, I like what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what also helps is that we leave our contact information on all of our, all of our literature. So mm-hmm. I leave my number, I leave my email. We want people to contact us because... I don't believe the work starts after the election. The work mm-hmm. starts before the election because we need to hear from people about what their concerns are and what they want to see change. Hmm. And I know in city council elections, one issue just historically is that like turnout can be pretty low. And so right now, um, I know the race in your district and the 15th district is really busy. Like when you're canvassing, are do you 
get a feeling that that maybe turn out this year will be different or, or do you have any thoughts on that? Well, special elections have mm-hmm. notorious um, low turnout. Even our primaries have low turnout. A lot of people still don't know that there's a special election going on. Right. I anticipate June will be better because the mayoral race gets so much attention. So much attention. Mm-hmm. But I think the real issue is the calendar of when municipal elections take place. Mm-hmm. They should take place in presidential years and even numbered mm-hmm. years so they can take place the same time as the state legislative races are up. Mm-hmm. Um, that would require a change in the state constitution. But mm-hmm. I think we should have city and state elections in the same years mm-hmm. so people don't get confused and we have higher turnout, especially if it's in a presidential year. Right. Because you're going to go to the polls. The person who's voting is not so concerned about like what the administrative stuff is. It's like this is their time to vote. They go and they vote city, state, federal, and it's it's over. Exactly. We should simplify the process. And then, of right. course, there's a lot of more things we could do. Like we should have same day registration. Mm-hmm. We should have vote by mail without any excuses. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be deadlines for people to change their party registration. Mm-hmm. A lot of barriers that the state needs to work on. Mm-hmm. And beyond canvassing to uh, for your campaign to kind of, I guess, community engagement and also just to keep your team happy. I've seen you guys have done some interesting events. I saw this week you had a uh, you, did you guys do a uh, basketball watch party? Oh, yes. Yes. That was for the team. We watched the Knicks lose watched- again. Nick, and now <laughs> it was Knicks versus who? I like I like this event a lot. I'm a big basketball it, fan. It was Knicks versus Warriors and. Okay. As usual, the Knicks came close, but they fell short. Yeah, they've got a little something going on this year, but maybe not. Uh... Well, I was just ragging on my uh, two staff members who are Knicks fans. So I enjoyed it, but they didn't enjoy the game too much. <laughs> You're, are you not a Knicks fan? No, I know better than that. <laughs> I feel like yeah, being a Knicks fan is like signing up for just uh, a lifetime of yeah, I followed this the... disappointment. I follow championship caliber team. So I'm a Yankees fan. Okay. Okay. There we go. There we go. <laughs> um, all right. So let's get into it. So uh, for John Sanchez, what are the things that you would like, like for people who have been following you or maybe people who are just learning about you, what are like some take home points about you, your campaign, and what you want people to know? I'm running for a very specific reason and we have specific and bold ideas. We want to make this neighborhood where people can stay in, remain, and raise their families and not feel like they have to leave the neighborhood to make it. Mm-hmm. Grew up on 184th and Park Avenue. And I've been working in the community as a district manager for the past four years. And people usually think about what does a community board do? Typically, community boards just have monthly meetings and they complain about new development or parking. But mm-hmm. a community board was different. We established the only year-round paid internship program so young people can learn about government and get that experience. Mm-hmm. We sponsored financial literacy workshops and fitness classes mm-hmm. for the community, seniors, youth. We even sponsored open gyms for the summer for young people to have somewhere to be. What are, open, which, can you, what are open gyms? Yeah, open gyms are an opportunity for young people to play basketball, volleyball at a gym free of charge mm-hmm. because people take it for granted. That's not a common thing in the Bronx. We have all of these vacant gym spaces in the summer that they're unused. Um, So that's what we're trying to do. And that experience led me to thinking about running for council because community members were saying, we think you should run. You've been doing a great job at the community board. Mm -hmm. There's an opportunity to do more. So for the city council, we started our campaign with an Mm op-ed to Soho saying that wealthy neighborhoods need to allow affordable housing. They need to change their zoning, which has been historically exclusionary and promoting segregation. We can't have gated communities in New York City. Every Mm -hmm. neighborhood in the city needs to promote affordable housing. And the op-ed took off Mm -hmm. and people, it really resonated with people. And then the rest is history. And that was, you had already announced that you were going to run when that op-ed came out? Or it was- No, that was actually, that was a week before. And then, and then that built some momentum and you, and you went for it. Yes. And when you say you feel like people feel like they need to leave your district, uh, to, uh, achieve success, you said something along those lines in the beginning. What what do you mean by that? Like, why is that? What what does that mean to you? Well, there's a feeling, um, especially if you're from a 
low-income household, you're often told by your parents, we want you to leave the neighborhood, leave the neighborhood. We want you to move to the suburbs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I reject that notion. I think it's important for people that make it, whether that's being a college graduate or having a high paying job, they should be able to remain in their neighborhood and be a part of improving it Mm -hmm. instead of ceding that responsibility for others. And then District 15 specifically, so we said it's a special election. What does that mean? And I know, and yeah, just introduce what, what does it mean that it's a special election? And also then a little bit about um, how, how folks in and out of your district you think should kind of understand uh, the, the particular needs of, of District 15. A special election is called whenever uh, an existing elected official vacates their seat. Mm-hmm. It's a nonpartisan race, meaning Democrats, Republicans, and independents can vote. And whoever wins a special election, they fill the term for the rest of this calendar year. Mm-hmm. There's a June primary, which also is taking place, that they take over the term for the next two-year term. So one thing with your district that I think is interesting is... Richie Torres was formerly city council, right? For district 15. Yes. He was the council member. So he was the council member. He gets elected to Congress. Um, and he's, I think one of the most famous candidates coming from the Bronx in the last several years, because he made it to, um, become a federal policymaker. Uh, but does that, does his legacy at all impact the folks running there? Or does it mean that people in the district know a bit more about city politics and are going to be more active in voting? I mean, he was in office nearly eight years. Mm-hmm. And whenever we speak to voters telling, explaining that we're going to, we're running to fill the seat, mm-hmm. um, their eyes brighten. He did a great job as a council member. And I'm trying to continue that and build on that. I mean, as a district manager, I took over for someone that was there 21 years. Mm-hmm. I had big shoes to fill. But I was able to do that. And we really transformed what a community board can do. And I feel like this is another challenge to fill some big shoes. But I think we can do that and we can build upon his success. But yes, he did a great job in the council. I won't say that people know more about city politics. Mm -hmm. I will say he did a great job of the people who normally vote. They know who he is. They know his track record and what to expect from a council member. Mm -hmm. So he raised the bar for council members in the city and it's not just handling constituent concerns but it's becoming a policy leader in the council that way when you're making statements on things you're respected citywide and that's what i intend to continue Mm -hmm. okay and then that's that's why we made sure our our campaign is based on specific policies and plans Mm -hmm. it's not generic where you could copy and paste what we're saying in any other neighborhood in New York City. We're Mm -hmm. very specific. We talk about the Grand Concourse, the Fordham Library, Tremont Park. The policies and platform is informed by conversations with the community over the past four years. Mm -hmm. And so then getting into those specific policies, the prompt for today's episode is, given that this is a, a podcast that sort of looks at these connections between politics, health, uh, or politics and health and, and all the different things that impact health in the Bronx. Um, what is one policy that, that you're running on that you see as connected to health or um, about improving health for, for Bronx residents? Yes. The number one policy is bringing a birthing center to the Bronx. And for the listeners, a birthing center is a center that is staffed by doulas and midwives and it's for low risk pregnancies, but you know, it really is more holistic and um, you know, less focus on the medical part, but more of the wellness part, ensuring that the mother is comfortable, that she feels well, not just physically, but mentally. Mm-hmm. And it's staffed mostly by doulas and midwives. And the reason for that is because there's a great disparity when it comes to maternal mortality and maternal morbidity or complications, especially among Black and Latino women, Mm -hmm. regardless of their income, regardless of their educational background. 
Are there any statistics? Because I, I think the statistics here are, are pretty important. Are there any statistics that you can think of that that really drive that home? Well, I mean, for for black women, I mean, they're eight times more likely to die than white women during childbirth. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just staggering. Yeah, it's staggering. And also, I mean, black women are twice as likely as white women to experience pregnancy related complications. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is staggering, especially in a district like district 15, which is 90% black and Latino. Mm-hmm. So literally almost all the women in district 15 have a great risk of having complications and it needs to be addressed on a city level, but especially in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, there's only two freestanding birth centers in New York City. There are none in the Bronx. And this is a recurring theme where certain facilities or investments aren't in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And I'm committed to changing that. And for the listeners, it's important to know, you know the city council, we get money every year in the budget. We get mm-hmm. something called capital money, which is for construction projects. And we get discretionary funding, which can go towards nonprofits. The total of all of this money is about five and a half million dollars. This is serious money. Mm-hmm. And it's important that if I'm in the council, that I work with my colleagues in the Bronx, where we can pool our money together to fund something like a birth center in our borough, because it's so important. And so then just to like sort of define a little more clearly what a birth center is, is, is delivery actually happening there? Or is it a place where um, women throughout the course of their pregnancy go to get supportive care from midwives and doulas, or is it that throughout the course of their care, they go there and also for delivery, if they're a low risk pregnancy, that they also go there and that's where labor and delivery are happening. Yes. So there's, you know, free, pre-birth care mm-hmm. and deliveries do happen at birth centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, most births still happen at hospitals, but for low risk pregnancies, um, birthing centers are a great option. They're actually you know, more affordable than a hospital birth mm-hmm. and uh, women are less likely to um, have C-sections at a birthing center. And also what's also great about birthing centers is that they, they provide postnatal care as, as well. Mm-hmm. The United States is one of the few countries that doesn't provide pre and postnatal care. And that's important, especially in the postpartum period. You know, giving birth is a major life activity. It's a major mm-hmm. life moment. Mm-hmm. And you know, women need to get care before, during, and after the birth as well. Not just you know, the women, but their partners as well. Mm-hmm. Husbands, partners. I mean, this impacts the whole family and we want to make sure that we're investing in birth from the beginning, making sure that we have healthy babies, healthy mothers. And what is the, like, how has it been established that birthing centers actually improve these, uh, outcomes of disparities in like racial disparities in, uh, maternal mortality rates and, uh, complications in pregnancy? Well, a few things. I mean, the doulas, they provide the physical, emotional support that Mm -hmm. that they need, but it's also more patient focused. There's an issue with the hospital system right now where it tends to discriminate against Black and Latino women. We've seen incidents where women as famous as Serena Williams had to strongly advocate for their, their care when giving birth. Um, you know, there are, there's implicit bias against women of color, mm-hmm. whether it's believing that they can take on more pain, whether their needs aren't, should, are serious. Um, and I mean, some research has shown that, you know, midwife delivered intervictions could avert, you know, more than a third of maternal deaths. Mm-hmm. Also, what's also important about, you know, the midwives, because remember birthing sensor staffed by doula and midwives. I mean, midwives, it reduces the use of epidurals, C-sections, I mean, because the C-sections create higher risks of deaths. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just by the very nature that you're not having C-sections at the birthing centers, that reduces complications and deaths. And so, um, also just to define for, if someone's listening is is not super clear, doula is going to be someone that's going to follow the person through pregnancy and provide supportive care. And the midwife is actually, is more medically trained, right? And it's going to help throughout exactly. labor, similar to like a nurse. Is that yes, 
I'm still learning about the issue. Uh-huh. I am not a medical professional, but right. what I do know is that the Bronx doesn't have a birthing center. Mm-hmm. And that very fact is something that I'm committed to changing and investing capital money towards so we can have a birthing center and make sure it's staffed by people from the community that are experienced as doulas and midwives, but also you know, creating the pipeline. How are we training Bronx residents to get into the birth work industry? There may be people in the Bronx that want to be doulas and midwives, mm-hmm. but they've never been exposed to it. So it's not just having the birthing center, but how are we training people to get into those careers as well? I think that's very important. Um, a cornerstone of, a, of an effective birthing center, based on my research, is that it's culturally responsive and that it's staffed by people from the community. Mm-hmm. So that includes everything from language access to representing the community that they're serving. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important because oftentimes, you know, people of color, we go to a hospital and the doctors and nurses, and especially the doctors, they may not look like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may not feel comfortable. They may not speak the language that we speak. Um, and it can be intimidating. I mean, a hospital, you know, you're, you're not only just dealing with birds, you're dealing with people suffering severe illnesses, perhaps mm-hmm. getting shot. What's great about a birthing center is that only births happen there. Right, right. <laughs> you're not competing with the person that got shot, the person that got hit by a car. Mm-hmm. Only births happen there. So right. that in itself is good. Yeah, that's a really important point. And the experience is all about from when you enter this place to when you leave, the experience is all about providing care to women during pregnancy. Exactly. And then, and I guess from from where you stand in the perspective of policy, city council, a little bit about the kind of like weeds of how, getting into the weeds of how we would make this happen. What are some of the, like how would funds be allocated? What is the timeline for building something like this? Um, is our city council budget going to be used to train midwives and doulas? Um, can you speak a little bit about that process? Yeah. For the listeners, it's important to know that the city budget's about $90 billion. Mm-hmm. And the city budget has to be passed by July 1st. Every June, the city council and the speaker, they negotiate with the, with the mayor to get certain priorities in the budget. So short answer, when it comes to the construction side, we would definitely have to get estimates so far, I've been hearing that the cost could be about $1 million just for the construction. Mm-hmm. And then for the programming, it depends on how many staff members there are. That could be an additional million dollars. It's something that definitely can be funded by the city council, the Bronx delegation. The money is there. The issue is, you know, how do we make this a forefront issue that mm-hmm. the city council takes on to fund? Mm-hmm. So the money is there. It's just with so many competing priorities, we're recovering from COVID, we want small businesses to recover. How do we ensure that this is a priority in this year's budget? And that's what I'm going to work on. But the money is there. We just have to get it in front of the line of the other priorities. And are there other people already on city council from the Bronx or other policymakers in other um, boroughs that are are interested in advocating this for the Bronx? Like, do you have, is there like a sort of a, a coalition at all that, that will help make this a priority? Well, I'm not in office yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, or is it like, is there, cause I've, I've heard about this from you. I haven't yes. seen much, like, is there, is there a buzz for, for sort of oh, making yes. this happen? Oh yes. Um, council member Carlina Rivera, who represents the lower East side. Mm-hmm. Um, she's really taken a leadership role on this in terms of passing legislation and pushing the state to cover doulas and midwives so they can get reimbursed through insurance. She's been a leader on the issue. She's on the chair of the um, Health and Hospitals Committee. Mm-hmm. And she's definitely been a champion on the issue. And I think if I get elected, that's someone I could definitely work with to make this a reality. She's held hearings, in fact, with professionals and also mothers talking about their experience giving birth. And um, she's been a champion on the issue. And I was, uh, you know, I was interested in the birthing sensor idea, not only from her advocacy, but also from my friend who works at Montefiore Hospital. Mm-hmm. And I, I told him, I want to have a, a specific health platform. There's so many issues when it comes to health in the Bronx. I know that we can't solve asthma overnight. Mm-hmm. I know we can't solve diabetes overnight. But what's something that the Bronx doesn't have mm-hmm. that just needs to get funded? 
so mm-hmm. we can take a step in the right direction. And when he right. mentioned the birth center and he linked to what Carlina Rivera was doing, I said, this is a no brainer. The Bronx needs this. Mm-hmm. The money is there. I should advocate and include it in my platform. And that's what yeah. I did. And the deliverable is really clear, exactly. which I think is, is great. And I know, I know even for this, um, like a mentor of mine at, I'm in medical school, right? So a mentor of mine here, when I was, when I've talked to him about uh, issues of like related to health in the Bronx. One of the first things he said that he feels like is often overlooked is the difference in mortality rates uh, between Bronx residents, specifically black and brown Bronx residents and um, folks in other parts of New York City. So I think it's a really, really important. Yeah, it's issue. astonishing. It's mm-hmm. astonishing. I mean, I mean, you know, this, you know, having, it's not just, okay, you have a com- pregnancy with complications. Mm-hmm. This causes long-term health impacts. It can cause long-term health impacts on the child. Mm-hmm. And it really is a call to action to do something about it. It impacts not only the mother, it impacts the whole entire family network. It involves mental health. And, you know, if half of the population has an issue with complications and dying by bringing life into this world, we need to put invest to change this. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to just have words and say the issue. We need to invest real money in it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And these, and the complex, the issue is complex because on one level you have providers need to change their practices. On another level, there's these um, kind of systemic factors that make a, someone from, lower income who maybe if they are less healthy or um, maybe obese when they go into pregnancy, there's going to be more complications. So uh, I think it's a, it's a really, uh, I really appreciate you coming on and talk about it. Um, And another, another point I just wanted to add is that, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times we think, you know, United States is the best in everything, but I think we all can agree that we're not the best when it comes to healthcare, even though we spend the most. Mm -hmm. And you know, in other countries, midwives outnumber OBGYNs. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, we don't guarantee access to provider home visits and paid parental leave. I mean, we spend the most, but we have the worst outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that we realize other countries have better practices. Let's model some of that and bring that here. Okay. And then we are, we're coming to a close <laughs> on time. So yeah, yeah. Just uh, to, in, in conclusion, what's the next, what's the next month look like for you? The next three and a half weeks will yeah, be the next a lot three of, and a half weeks. a lot of canvassing, making phone calls, putting up flyers, sending mail and speaking to as many people as we can. We realize that, you know, this election really can have an impact on the next 10 years of the city council. Yes. My election's coming up, but we're going to have a new mayor, new borough presidents, 35 new city council members. This will determine the next 10 years of the city. And it's crucial that your listeners participate in this election, regardless Mm -hmm. of their party. If you want to see a New York that has more housing for all, that has more opportunities for people, whether they go to college or not, that addresses maternal mortality and maternal morbidity, you need to pay attention and elect great public servants. Yep. All right, John, thank you so much. I'd say in closing, uh, I hope folks who listen to this can follow your campaign um, beyond this uh, platform for a birth center in the Bronx. I think the way you've talked about like um, fitness, given your background as a personal trainer um, and some of the work and some of the ideas around how to make the streets better for pedestrians and make the Grand Concourse, um, improve the Grand Concourse to make it better for Bronx sites are all Uh, imaginative and show um, a lot of thought put into your campaign. And I really appreciate you coming on and uh, anything else. It looked like you were about to say something. Thank you for the opportunity, Alex. I appreciate what you're doing through this podcast. I think we all want to work together to improve the health outcomes of the Bronx and we can make it happen. Let's do it. All right. Take care. Have a good afternoon. Bye-bye.
now we have Elisa Crespo joining us. Elisa, um, I know this is a really busy time for you guys. So what has the what does today look like? What does the next month look like before you before we get into uh, um, the rest of this episode? Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Alexander. I'm really honored to be here. Um, mm-hmm. Healthy Bronx podcast. Um, today we're doing some interviews, like a lot of um, podcasts, um, you know, media stuff. But then later on this evening, we have um, a couple of hours worth of uh, call time or rather phone banking, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next couple of weeks, um, up until March 23rd, I believe we have um, something like 20, I don't know, 27 days, uh, some, give or take till election day mm-hmm. is really about um, voter outreach, mm-hmm. engaging uh, the electorate, um, whether we're doing that virtually, um, through text, through phones, through um, hitting the ground. Um, but it's really about getting out the vote for the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And is there is there any creative ways you guys can do that? Because I know voter turnout is really important for um, for these elections. Yeah, I mean, we are using digital tactics. Um, as I mentioned, we are um, sending thousands of texts, calling voters, um, sending mailers, postcards, um, you know, and of course, hitting the streets, um, mm-hmm. meeting people where they are on the ground, um, doing um, robocalls. So there are um, ads, there are, there are many ways um, to connect with voters. Mm-hmm. And now to kind of understand who Aliso Crespo is and, and to understand your, uh, your candidacy for District 15, what are, like the, what are some of the, the key messages that you want people to know about, about you and, and your platform? Well, I'll, I'll do a, a brief introduction uh, mm-hmm. of who I am. Um, I'm a native New Yorker. I was born and raised in the city, um, raised by a working class Latina who um, relied on the social safety net to take care of me and my siblings. So I'm a product of public housing, a product of public schools, uh, Section 8, Medicaid, food stamps. Um, that was our life. You know, we had to struggle to survive. Um, but I um, like to think that... Um, I am really focused on trying to break the cycle of poverty in my family and my, my mother's first child to graduate from college. Um, and college is really where I began organizing and where mm-hmm. my activism began, you know, really um, taking trips to Albany to agitate legislators, to fully fund CUNY, to make sure CUNY was affordable and accessible. And um, shortly thereafter, realizing that public service was my passion, and so I started to intern and work for public servants. I worked for the Bronx World President's Office. I served as the education liaison there, um, representing the office on community education councils throughout the borough and working with special education students and their parents, advocating for them, letting them know what their rights were. Um, so public education, strengthening our public education system has really been um, my work that I've been really doing for the past couple of years. Um, And, you know, decided to run for public office because I believe in the power of public service and I know how it can transform people's lives. And so the focus of our campaign is jobs and justice because we believe and and the data shows that unequivocally the Bronx is suffering from poverty, racially concentrated poverty, Great Depression levels of unemployment. And we want people to, um, we want to move people from generational poverty to generational wealth. And so we are pushing some uh, innovative ideas like a public option for employment, um, which is really just a a municipal jobs program that would provide um, a job for anyone that is unemployed, um, whether it be a park ranger or a clerk. Uh, there's so many municipal positions that we Mm -hmm. can um, hire people for. And of course it would be, designed for targeted vulnerable populations, people who have historically been shut out from the private sector, job market, uh, at-risk youth, homeless, formerly incarcerated seniors, people with disabilities, LGBTQ, um, those sorts of of individuals. Um, So yeah, you know, addressing unemployment, putting people back to work, workforce development, youth development, those are some of the uh, most important things that um, my campaign is, is pushing forward. And before we go uh, into a bit more of the specifics of 
um, some of the policies you're running on, specifically the um, public option for employment. Can you talk a little bit about what your experience at the Bronx Borough Presence Office was like and how um, how maybe that makes you understand like what, what city council is capable of and what some of the challenges are? Well, I had worked for council members. I had done a lot of uh, constituent services work. I had um, interned for um, the Speaker of the State Assembly. Um, and so I have, you know, really seen um, the inner workings of government um, and how things work. Uh, but in the borough president's office, um, I really got a, a hands-on uh, experience of, of what education, like what's working and what's not working for low-income students in the Bronx, where um, we really need to improve, uh, you know, what school districts are doing better than others. Um, and we did a lot of work around, um, I also did a lot of constituent services work there with um, parents, right? And that could be anything from like bullying to um, I need help transferring my child to another school um, or my child's not getting the services that they're entitled to according to their, their IEP, their you know, individualized education plan. Mm -hmm. um, we did a lot of work with getting out the census in junior high schools and high schools uh, because we found that um, the school was where parents really got a lot of their information from in terms of the census. So we really pushed that really hard. You know, we, we strategized um, and met with the New York State Education Department to reimagine high school graduation requirements in, in the state of New York. Um, so we did a lot of, of hands-on work. And um, of course, the borough president's office is um, a very diverse and collaborative environment. There are offices not just dedicated to education, but mm -hmm. to um, uh, land use and seniors and community boards and, and uh, constituent services. So there's, um, it's really a one-stop shop sort of uh, community hub for people to uh, get services for the borough of the Bronx. And, um, you know, I was pulled into other things besides education, of course, but education mm -hmm. was, was the work that I was really hired to do. And so what are in the next, like, let's say in the next year or so, what are some areas where the Bronx, the Bronx Borough Presence Office and uh, legislators in the Bronx are really focused on as it relates to education? Like, what are a few specific programs that you would like to see implemented or accomplished that can uh, help help youth in the Bronx? So one of the things that we're really focused on is chronic absenteeism and um, reading comprehension at an early age, because we know once you get past a certain age, it becomes more difficult. Um, so, you know, we spend a lot of time with, with um, groups like South Bronx Rising, um, Bronx Impact, uh, Here to Hear. We really tried to focus on uh, work-based learning uh, creating public-private partnerships with um, employers in the Bronx to create um, internships for Bronx students. Um, so that's some of the stuff that the borough president's office is working on. Um, of course, the borough president has uh, Rezo A funding, and so we did a lot of workshops on, on, or you know, meeting with school principals about sort of what capital projects they wanted funded and. and trying to figure out which ones were a priority for us as a borough. Um, but in, I think in general, um, as it relates to education, there's really a lot that we could be doing. You know, we spend, uh, the, the Department of Education is the um, agency with the highest budget, um, rightfully so. But sometimes I think the, the fund, the money, the funds are not going to um, where they need to go. And I think we need to have a specific um, priority for the most neediest schools in the most low income neighborhoods. Um, if we want real equity, I think that we have to um, really expand the, the community school model um, the Bronx is um, notorious for having overcrowded school districts. And so not, not only do we just need to build um, more schools, particularly junior high schools, 
but those schools should be um, community schools, particularly for the ones that are in, in the grade school level. Uh, community schools are proven to increase graduation rates, they have better attendance, they provide on-site wraparound services for both students and family members, uh, vision, dental, mental health services, mentoring, um, adult education. They're, they're just proven um, models of schools that have really worked wonders, especially for low-income communities. So community schools is something I'm really um, pushing for and focused on as many other folks are. Um, more STEM programs, robotics, career and technical education, um, dual language programs. Um, of course, we have to increase funding for uh, social workers and counselors um, and the digital divide was something we um, worked with a lot in, in the VP's office, making sure that um, students have access to laptops and, and tablets that are functioning and, and connecting to the internet. Mm -hmm focusing on um, students in temporary housing and, and in public housing. Um, but some other things that we should be introducing is culturally responsive, sustaining education, right? Um, teaching students about black history, teaching students about LGBTQ history, incorporating financial literacy, um, healthy eating habits, civics. There is so much we can do. And lastly, the students who uh, receive the short end of the stick time and time again, are the most vulnerable ones. The District 75 students, mm -hmm. um, the special education students, students with individualized education plans um, are really having a hard time, particularly um, as we transition to remote learning and hybrid and back in person. There's a tremendous amount of learning loss and that is something that um, I'm very concerned about for Bronx students. And since you said you worked on the uh, you worked specifically with District 75 students, right? Given that you worked on these individualized education plans, is that correct? Not on the individualized education plans. I, I wouldn't be a stakeholder in that. That's between the, the student, the parents, the, the educators, the psychologists, um, doctors. They're the ones that um, take part in those um, meetings. Mm -hmm. But what we really did was helped parents understand that they have an equal role in the IEP process because lots okay. of parents um, don't fully understand that their voice is important in that process and that they have rights and that they can appeal and that they could receive outside help. Um, some of them, it's just a foreign sort of um, procedure to them. And so we kind of try to break down the barriers and help them navigate resources um, to make sure that you know the child was really getting the services that they need um, and not missing any services or getting services that weren't necessary. Um, we have a big problem with IEP processes being delayed in the Bronx. Um, so there's just a lot of outreach and education that needs to be done um, for the parents, immigrant parents, parents who um, don't speak English as a first language. So that was most of the work we did. Understood. And now turning a little bit towards um, some of the specific policies on your platform, the, the sort of prompt for today's episode is to discuss one policy that you are advocating for or running on that you see as connected to the health of your district. And then, and hopefully through that, understanding a little bit more about the needs of your district. So uh, what, what is that policy that you are, that you want to talk about today? Well, there are a lot, but the one that I think is most important is addressing um, what some call food apartheid or um, food deserts. We know that the Bronx, um, there aren't a lot of healthy food options. Um, you know, we're surrounded by lots of fast food, Kennedy's, those types of things. And a lot of it is because of um, affordability, mm -hmm. um, sadly. But what I think that we have to do as a city is um, not only provide healthy eating habits in schools, right, just to go back to that for a second, but investing in urban farms and giving people the tools that they need to grow their own plant-based, healthy, nutritious food in their own communities, in their own backyards. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is crucial and important um, because the reality is we don't have a lot of, of places where we can go and get um, healthy plant-based options unless we're going to the supermarket. And in some cases, uh, we know there are certain neighborhoods where um, 
there aren't, there isn't a supermarket uh, really close by. And so programs like the, um, the Fresh program um, run by the city, which is the Food Retail Expansion to Support Health program, mm -hmm. which provides um, tax incentives to uh, business owners who plan to open up um, markets in certain communities is something we have to expand and really look at. Fresh also provides incentives for like a, for, for stores to also like, like let's say there's a, a bodega or a small grocery. Don't they get an incentive if they have a certain amount of healthy food within the, in the actual um, like market? Correct. Yes. Um, and so um, as it relates to food, then what, what does this look like? Like, what are some sort of, can we add a little substance to what that's going to look like in your district? What are some um, places that are maybe are in particular need of healthier food options or places where there needs to be maybe like a grocery store built or more farmers markets or, or what is, what does that look like in district 15? Right. I mean, I think a lot of it is also promoting outreach and education. As with most things, we do have um, a farmer's market that comes to the Fordham Plaza mm -hmm. um, that, ex that accepts healthy food bucks. Um, you know, we have to, people have to know that that's there. We have to sort of um, promote that and, 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 you know, really try and push them to be going to the farmer's market. Um, but we have an, an, a farm in the Bronx, right on Washington Avenue, just a few blocks where I live, mm -hmm. and it's it's just abandoned, and it's it's not in you know it's not being invested in, it's not being uh, properly maintained and taken care of, um, and we have to we should be considering whether we want to um, preserve um, vacant lots, right, and making making them into community gardens and urban farms. We should be investing in creating more of, of the farms in the Bronx, particularly in areas like mine that are suffering from, you know, environmental injustice and food apartheid. And are there, are there models in other parts of the city that you think have done, like that, that provide a, a framework for, to, to combating food apartheid? Or is there a particular leader in the Bronx who you want to work with to, um, to improve food issues around food security or, or, or sort of tear down food apartheid? I don't know. I mean, there's, this is obviously something a lot of Bronx electeds and candidates are talking about because we mm -hmm. understand um, the disproportionate impact that we face. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that there's a, a particular individual, um, but I think collectively as a delegation, a Bronx delegation in the council and, and on the state level, we all have to work together to figure out how we can use our discretionary funds, um, not only to invest in these types of, of programs and projects, but but investing in, in the community-based organizations that are doing amazing work, that are providing um, food to those who need it, you know, expanding food pantries, um, making sure folks who are eligible for SNAP know that they're eligible, helping them apply for it. Um, we have great um, organizations. Many of them sadly have been closed down, uh, but we still have some really good um, community-based organizations that do great work. One of them um, that comes to mind is part of the solution, POTS, here in our district that runs um, you know, a, a daily kitchen, soup kitchen. They give warm meals, um, food boxes all the time um, to Bronx residents. And those people, they need our help so they can continue to do that kind of work. Mm -hmm. And, and you see, you mentioned how you see this issue connected to environmental injustice. And I know that you, this past week, um, and a list of a number of endorsements you've received, you received an endorsement from the Sunrise, Mo the Sunrise Movement uh, of New York City, which I think is a, um, an important accomplishment. And also, you know, for, the, for people who are less familiar, Sunrise is this um, sort of grassroots youth-led organization that has these hubs of, to organize um, young people around environmental activism and they're sort of like the largest hub in New York would be the Sunrise um, NYC hub and they just they just endorsed you and so what does that what does that mean for you and how do you see that as connected to food and sort of uh, as connected to policy around food and then also connected to um, environmental activism more broadly well we're, we're, we're grateful and honored to have um, the support of Sunrise NYC um, we were endorsed early on by their Bronx hub Mm -hmm. um, and, and they've been amazing. They've been very helpful. You know, young people in particular are um, some of the, the most effective um, 
organizers as it relates to climate change. Um, and I think that's because we, we feel the sense of urgency. We understand that this is an issue that's going to fall onto our laps um, and, and our generation, right? The, the decisions made by those before us aren't necessarily going to impact them as much as they will impact the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're really proud to have them on, on board and you know, they've done some really great work um, with uh, promoting a Green New Deal for public housing, um, literally organizing with tenant association uh, leaders or uh, resident council presidents there in the various NYCHA complexes across New York City, um, doing great campaigns. Um, so that's some of the work that we definitely want to um, expand upon. We have some NYCHA complexes here in the district. Uh, we want to educate um, NYCHA residents about what NYCHA can be um, and how it can lead the way uh, and how these same people who have um, directly been impacted can be a part of the solution and can build the next generation of green jobs. Um, NYCHA has so much potential. Um, we, can, we should be um, not only retrofitting, but um, imagine NYCHA um, leading the way with green roofs and solar panels and, and just greenery all around it and, and increased plazas in, in the middle of green plazas in the middle of the um, NYCHA complexes. There's so much potential there. Um, and so we're happy to work on those kinds of, of projects um, or promoting that kind of education uh, with Sunrise NYC. But in general, you know, the South Bronx and, and parts of the Central Bronx are just trapped between you know, these highways and expressways that produce transportation generated air pollution, um, toxic waste facilities, you know, waste transfer stations also tend to be located in parts of, of South Bronx and other low income communities of color throughout our city. Mm -hmm. And that also is uh, attributing to um, the poor air quality and to the um, disproportionate rates of, of asthma, um, and other illnesses among among bronchites. Um, and so these are just things that we have to address. And some of them are, are quite big. Um, there's a lot of talk about the Cross Bronx Expressway and, and that um, the 170,000 cars that and, and diesel fueled trucks that drive every day um, through across that expressway and how that is exacerbating asthma rates in and around um, the area where people live. And you know, there, are, there are a bunch of ideas, but they're going to require um, you know, partnerships between state and federal governments, um, you know, ideas like building an overdeck park on, on top of the, um, the Cross Bronx Expressway, which has so many, um, there will be so many benefits that we would gain um, not only decreasing the interaction between um, pedestrians and vehicles, but creating green space, helping us reduce our carbon footprint, and just promoting more outdoor activity, creating more pedestrian-friendly places where people can go out and exercise. Um, because that's also a part of, of the, the diabetes, the, the respiratory problems, the obesity that we see in the Bronx is us not having um, pedestrian friendly places, us, us not having, being physically active, not having um, adequate bike lanes, um, not, not having um, connected bike lanes across our borough and city, mm -hmm. them not being um, fully protected, right? Um, that's, there's no real incentive to want to use a bike lane if, um, if it's going to be overrun by a car. So there's a lot we can do in our, in our infrastructure and in our land use that could create um, a better pedestrian friendly environment for a city. And I think that would help us um, want to really use more transportation alternatives. Um, I'm thinking about buses and, and the congestion and, and how long it takes people to commute on a bus and, and how that sort of discourages people from wanting to use Mm -hmm. um, you know, use a bus to get to and, and from work or school. Mm -hmm. And so if we can create um, more bus lanes or, or, bus or more corridors where we are not allowing cars, but only buses to pass through, then I think that would speed up people's commute time and, and it would really incentivize more people to wanting to use 
um, our buses instead of using an Uber or driving to and from work. Right. And then um, I guess in, in closing, a final thought, because I, I know it is central to your platform and um, I read your op-ed in, I believe it was the Gotham Gazette about uh, the public option for jobs. Um, can you speak a little bit about how that happens, like how city council could make that happen and, and what a public option for employment um, really is? Because I think I think for some people they hear that and they immediately think it's like, it's someone, like, I don't think people realize that that actually means that it's through employment. It's not through like the government handing out money. Like these are these are creating jobs that are are federally, or, or sorry, provided by the city, correct? Can you talk a little bit about that? That is correct, this? yes. And you know, there are other major cities across the United States, like Los Angeles and Denver, that have these types of, of municipal jobs programs. Um, and, and essentially, they start off, they are really um, partnerships between community-based organizations and um, labor unions, right? Because these are what we're really trying to do is create more, not just city jobs, but we know that those jobs come with the benefits of organized labor. So labor has to be at the table um, and we have to come, you know, sort of create a memorandum of understanding. But the way it works in other places is that we start off, um, there are specific civil service titles and jobs that are set aside. Um, commissioners or managers of these agencies um, uh, set aside a percentage of, of open um, positions for such a program. Community-based organizations on the ground would be the first stop where folks would um, be screened and approved and referred to um, such as in, in New York City, DCAS, right? Who can keep a list of, of what's available. Um, we would then have to- Sorry, what is, for, for what is DCAS? Can you just define DCAS? DCAS is the Department of Citywide Administrative Services. Mm -hmm. And they really handle a lot of the administrative work and like civil service um, exams and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, and so they would be a part of this. Um, we would, they would be a part of, of helping us understand what city service titles we could um, allocate for such a, a public option for employment program. Mm -hmm. And it would start off as a, um, as a six month training go into a, uh, being hired six months on probationary period, and then ultimately being hired full time with full benefits, healthcare benefits, retirement pensions. Um, we know that a third of the workforce in the cities is, um, is aging and eligible for retirement. Um, and not only does this help create more jobs, but it, it helps our tax base, right? When we're creating more good paying um, middle-class family sustaining jobs, we are, are creating, um, giving people more money to put in their pockets to, to put back into the economy um, and, and invest right here in the businesses in our communities. So I think it's a win-win for everyone. Um, it's going to take uh, multiple stakeholders and parties to come to the table and agree, but um, it's being implemented in other places and New York City shouldn't be behind. Uh, we absolutely can do it. Um, and we need to do it because there's no other place um, than in the Bronx where you have such high unemployment rates. West Farms, East Tremont, we're talking 20, upwards of 20% of unemployment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, retail's great, right? Fast food's great. But how do we move people away from, how do we really uplift people and help them uplift themselves out of poverty and create wealth and savings um, and be prepared for retirement. And I think that public jobs, um, municipal jobs are a part of that. And we need to really um, look more into that. Okay. And, and how, where, like, where does the funding come from for, for a program like this? And what is the, is it phased in? Is it like, like what are some of the mechanics of how this Absolutely. happens? I mean, we start, it could start as a pilot, um, it doesn't, you know, but when we talk about funding, uh, where does the funding for $9 billion to build four new borough-based jails come from? Mm -hmm. uh, the same pool of funding that a public option for employment would come from. So it's about um, what we want to prioritize as a city um, and what we want our budget to look like. We say a lot of the times that our, our, our budget is a moral document. And so we, we, we have to 
prioritize putting people back to work. It's the only way that we're going to grow and recover from this pandemic. And so whether we have to um, advocate for long-term borrowing, whether we have to reallocate $9 billion for, for new jails, whether we have to divest from over-policing, um, whether we have to um, agitate Albany to pass revenue uh, generating legislation, we have to um, we have to find the money, and and I believe that we can. Okay, uh, well, thank you so much, Elisa. I, we have to end it there, um, but it was wonderful to speak with you today. Um, and uh, you have it's what three weeks left until until the election day. Uh, yeah, three and change. Three and change. Okay, so um, I wish you the best of luck, and um, thank you so much for coming on Healthy Bronx. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. You too.